Welcome back to the All Things Uncomfortable podcast, where we dive headfirst into topics that aren't your usual dinner table conversations. In this episode titled Unmasking Masculinity, we delve into the complexities of men's mental health, relationships, and development. I'm your host, Deborah, joined by my co-host, Mark, and we have a special guest speaker, Judy Chu, lecturer at Stanford University and author of the seminal book on boys' psychosocial development, When Boys Become Boys. Today, we're very excited to have with us Judy Chu who is an educator, advisor, author, researcher of boys' relationships and development, and who also lectures at Stanford University. Judy, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, of course. I've taught a course on boys' psychosocial development at Stanford since 2003, and that follows boys from infancy through young adulthood. My training is in human biology at Stanford. That's where I did my undergraduate work. And then I did my doctoral work at Harvard Graduate School of Education, focusing on human development and psychology. That's where I worked with Professor Carol Gilligan, and she is known for her groundbreaking work, primarily with women and adolescent girls. The project she started was called the Harvard Project on Women's Psychology and Girls Development. And what I did was basically use a similar relational framework and relational methods, which involved a voice-centered approach to learning about people's experiences from their perspectives. And under her supervision and with her guidance, I started to explore the experiences of gender socialization, particularly for boys at adolescence and early childhood, looking at basically the messages and pressures about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a real boy, quote unquote, and how they subsequently negotiate their sense of themselves, their relationships, how they engage with other people. And in light of those messages and pressures. And so look, really looking at how boys' gender socialization impacts their health and well-being and their relationships and development. So your focus was really about the messaging that boys get from a very young age. Yeah, and how they make sense of those and how they respond to it and what influences how they make sense and respond to those things, people in their lives or situations. And so under what circumstances are they more likely to then just internalize and try to align with them or maybe resist them when those messages don't fit with what they personally value or how they see themselves. In addition to that, while I was a uh, doctoral student and when I was a postdoc, I also participated and focused on the boys' piece of two larger projects, one looking at adolescent sexuality, which was led by Dr. Deborah Tolman, and one looking at adolescent friendships, which was led by Dr. Niobe Way, and that was at Wellesley College and at NYU, New York University, respectively. So I've looked at boys' development and boys' relationships, focusing on particular kinds of relationships. Really, the overarching theme was always, what are the messages and pressures that they're receiving? How are they making meaning of these? How are they responding? And how does this then impact the way they see themselves and relate to other people and engage in the world? So there's a lot of underlying messages that boys get from a very early age about how they have to be in the world, how they have to show up in the world. Yeah. But when you think about it, the minute you hear that somebody is pregnant, oftentimes, or that they've given birth, the first question is, What's the sex of the baby? Is it a boy or a girl? And I used to ask when I was pregnant, I'd say, what do you think that will tell you? The answer to that will tell you. And I've gotten really specific responses. Like they'll say, oh, then you'll know their personality and what kind of jobs they're likely to have and what kind of relation. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of assumptions based on one little piece of information, right? And granted, that was 20 years ago, but there's still kind of a remnants of that in, in today in terms of our assumptions. I think we are making progress in terms of assumptions around gender, but still very much we still have these inclinations or biases that are based on stereotypes that have persisted through the decades and really inform the way we view and respond to people, gender being but one of many aspects, of course, of one's identity that we think, oh, that will tell us this about this person. When if you think about it, given individual and group differences, it's really a, not a solid way to determine yeah. or, to, or to understand people, right? The only reason why I would ask somebody, is it boy or girls, is I know what to get for the kid. <laughs> I wouldn't think about all those other things, but it's interesting. But even that, right? Babies need milk and babies need clothes and diapers. Yeah. When you think about even like the kinds of clothes we would get or the colors that we would choose... The, all of a lot of that is socially constructed, right, and valued and determined in a way that doesn't really have to do with how we function biologically or physiologically. 
for the most part, there are some things that are specific, but it's very, it's a very tiny bit. Yeah. On that note, I was just wondering, how did you become an advocate for this? Because it's very unusual. And as a woman to advocate for boys' psychosocial development and men's mental health, that puts you in a very unique position, I believe. Yeah, I'd like to say, and I think it's a true acknowledgement that boys themselves brought me to this work. There's a story that I usually tell about how I came to it as after I entered doctoral studies and after my first year, I went home and I was chauffeuring my 13-year-old brother and his friends. And they were saying like, oh, Harvard, what are you learning at Harvard? Tell us something, impress us, basically. And I said, I met this woman named Carol Gilligan, and she was studying adolescent girls and how educators and practitioners and parents can better support girls' healthy development. And he basically stopped me. He goes, you know, I, I know that's all great and important and good. And we know that everyone's paying a lot of attention to girls these days. But you know what? There's stuff going on with boys, too. And nobody's talking to us. Nobody's listening to us. So he says, I know you should study boys. You can start with me. So I <laughs> laughed it off at the time and kind of said, OK, that's interesting. And when I went back to Harvard that fall, I was taking a clinical interviewing class with Carol and she was my advisor. And I told her what this boy had said. And she said, you should go study him. He clearly has something to say. And so for all my assignments and things, I interviewed him and I went back. Our first interview, he spoke for two hours talking about just various themes in his life, his relationships, what he was thinking about and had just a lot to share, which frankly surprised me because I didn't expect that first of all an adolescent boy would want to talk to me at all and secondly that he would want to share all these things that we don't stereotypically we think boys don't want to talk about this the stereotype is that boys don't either aren't interested or aren't able to share these things and of course that's not true and so he proved me wrong right from the start and and, but also was very generous and so for instance Mm -hmm. at the end like when I wrote the paper and I wrote it up and because I was young and I wanted to be respectful to him. I focused on more positive things. And then I you know, checked with him. I showed him, this is the paper I'm going to turn in. And he goes, this is nice, but I know you have to say like the negative or the bad things too, because you have to tell the truth. And yeah. so with his permission, I was then able to include a fuller picture of all the things that he was questioning and the things that he made him mad, the things that he was upset about, or the things that made him scared and vulnerable and things that I had done as to protect him. He was like, oh, but you need to tell the truth and you need to be honest. And so that, at the same time, revealing that boys want to be known for who they are. They, yes. they have access to a full range of their human thoughts and feelings and desires, and they want people to know that's who they are. But they're finding, and this particular boy narrated in his interview, they're finding that not everyone wants to hear it. Not everybody either wants to or is able to take in the fullness of their experience. And that, and then combined with things like having Red Catcher in the Rye and the first line is, if you really want to hear about it. That was the driving theme of, if you really want to hear about it, boys can tell you what they need. They can tell you what they know, but you have to show that you were truly interested, that you really care, that you're not just there to judge them or to check off a list of things that you think they're already experiencing. They they pick up on that immediately. The trust is especially necessary because like I said, with the other research projects that I worked on, I also interviewed adults and girls. And I'm not saying that trust isn't important there too, but because of the culture of boyhood and kind of social taboos around what boys are supposed to feel and share, the trust and the establishing comfort and familiarity and a real relationship between the researcher and participant was especially important for allowing boys to feel that they could say what they really thought and that it wasn't going to come back and bite them in the butt, that it wasn't going to get used against them. So the boys brought me into it. I started out looking at adolescent boys for those reasons, because he, he happened to be 13. And then I got in touch with schools and in, did um, a two-year study with 12 to 18-year-olds. And then I was in conversation with Carol and I was telling her, here's what I'm hearing. And for the most part, they've come to a point where they say to me, in summary, okay, there's a way that people see you. They expect you to be boys because you're a boy. They expect you to be this way. And there's a way that you experience yourself to be. And oftentimes there's a gap between those two. And part of growing up is accepting that there's just going to be a gap. People just aren't going to be able to see and know you as you are. And if you struggle with that, if you protest it, that's a sign of your immaturity. You haven't come to accept, quote, the way things are. 
And so I'm not saying that it was like a done deal and that their fates were sealed from then on. But I'm just saying that was what they were trying to convince themselves of. It seems to me, what the boys are saying is, it seems that this is the way things are. And really pushing against it, but feeling it, I'm not sure I'm going to win this fight. So maybe I should just accept it, suck it up and move on. Yeah, so it sounds like there's always that mask that they have to wear, right? Like, yeah, they've, yeah, they learned that there's a mask that, that makes them more acceptable, more desirable. And if they try to take off the mask, it's not always safe to do. And it's not always welcome. Some people, like I said, some people aren't, can't handle the truth or just don't really want to hear it. They want to hear, when they ask, how are you? They want to hear, I'm fine and move on. And so they don't want to hear that boys are scared or struggling or sad or feeling pain. They want to hear, I'm fine, let's keep going. And so Carol um, encouraged me then to look at younger boys, particularly early childhood. So I also studied four to six-year-old boys because she said, you want to get in at a time when they haven't yet begun to accept or to perceive that the way things are, when they're still really actively resisting, like, you know, resisting societal expectations that tell them you need to get this under control. You need to not feel this. You need to stop crying kind of thing. You know, when they're still like, I'm crying because I'm crying because they're kids. And that's how, you know, we express and feel our feelings. And so I also studied um, young boys and followed them for two years and at a moment of um, transition. So my book documents that moment where when we came in, they were four years old, they wore their hearts on their sleeves. They would and could tell you exactly what they were thinking and feeling. So you didn't have to second guess them. They were just out there and spunky and exuberant, but on the other side, vulnerable, right? Because they could be like, oh, I love that. And someone else next to them could say very casually, that's dumb or whatever, or that's for girls. And then they all of a sudden it's, oh, there's, there are rules around engagement. And if I want to be seen as a real boy, or if I want to be with the boys or one of the boys, I need to figure out how to be a little more strategic, a little more savvy. And so I watched them read very astutely the rules that society was telling them about what it means to be a real boy or a man. And I watched them figure out in a very socially adaptive move what it would take to fit in because that was their primary motivation. They weren't like adopting these masculine behaviors just because society says boys needed to be masculine. They were motivated because they wanted to identify and relate to other people. There was a relational foundation, a relational incentive there. And so, but then ironically and sadly, the very thing that motivates them, this desire for real connections to other people was hindered by the fact when they started to adopt that kind of masculine posturing that said, I don't need anyone. I'm so tough. I don't need to share my emotions. That actually got in the way of developing the kinds of relationships that was motivating them to accommodate those expectations in the first place. I'll stop for a sec. I know I went on and on. Give me a chance to redirect me. No, that was great. I wanted to ask Mark. So does anything that Judy says resonate with you and your own experience growing up? Um, yeah, I think definitely there's aspects of where you get told as a boy, right? And, then, and I think it happens across many different parts of the world. It's like, boys don't cry. Like, you need to just man up. It's something that you hear as like an adolescent male. It's like, man up, man. Like, get a stiff upper lip. Those are things that, that do get told to you. And you do learn certain aspects of, now I've got to bottle certain things in um, just to be sociably acceptable. And then I've got to be very selective on who I let see those vulnerable sides of me. And that's, it happens at quite a young age. So for me, I would probably say that's nine, eight, nine, 10, 11 is where for my own personal life, where I started hearing that a lot. You need to man up this way, you need to do this is how boys behave in certain things. And there's elements of truth to some of this stuff. Like I think in some times when some people saying man up can be very soul destroying. But other times it's okay, like let's start working on resilience. But that means that you've got to have quite strong male figures in your life who can help you develop that resilience. But there is a time and place to let those emotions out with the right people who will take care. But where it becomes difficult is, okay, who are those people? <laughs> and that's, uh, that becomes like quite a real question. So like just listening to you, um, Judy, I was just like, yeah, those experiences I think is like quite quite significant for a man growing up and what the expectations are for what masculinity is and you're told you're masculine at a certain age and you're like what does that mean what does masculinity mean what does it look like how am i meant to act and these are all intrinsic questions that we deal with as men what does that actually mean what does it mean for me to be a masculine leader what does it mean when somebody says that you're toxic in your masculinity what does it mean when they expect certain things of you 
What are those expectations? Why do they have that? And I believe women also go through the same thing, just in a very different way. And maybe their vulnerabilities are more acceptable. But it's for men, it's like being vulnerable was initially seen as a weakness. And only later have I realized that it's actually, you've got to be quite strong, actually, to be vulnerable. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it's quite interesting that you focused on Judy, like that they conformed because they wanted to belong and they wanted to just fit in. And I think that's such a normal human desire to be able to be part of a group, to be able to find your tribe of people. And sometimes when you don't show all those signifiers of what other people have, you feel like you're an outlier. And going back to that idea of boys don't cry, it's funny because in Asian culture, like growing up, I think across the board, parents will tell their kids not to cry. I think both girls and boys, especially in my generation, we were basically expected to keep it in. So I think there's a cultural element to that. And then I think in Asian culture, especially Chinese culture, there's this sense of like male superiority. It's very pronounced in Chinese. I'm not sure if you speak Mandarin, but like they call it which mm-hmm. is weight to the man and to not take a woman seriously. And I think that that has had some impact on like my life as well because for me I've not ever really identified fully in that feminine way not having seen that in my life my mother wasn't like that and she was a very strong woman and it was only when I went to America that I started seeing these very stark gender differences and I changed when I lived there in LA for about eight years like I changed like my identity changed as well a little bit yeah definitely I think in terms of what both of you talked about Gender norms are out there in terms of what, what societies are, and, and it, it varies across cultures, but what societies deem masculine versus feminine. But you're also absolutely right that, first of all, gender is not exclusive by sex. So women, as you're saying, Deborah, we grow up because of the question of under patriarchy, who gets valued and what gets valued in whom, right? And in cultures where you know, usually masculinity is valued over femininity, then everybody's striving towards masculinity. And you see it more and more now. Oh, so women can have access to the men's world. And you're like, okay, but maybe that that masculine world isn't really good for anybody. And but we aspire to it because it's associated with power and with status and it's strength. All the things that are that we deem masculine are seen as admirable and yeah. valuable, right? And whereas all the things that are deemed feminine get devalued systematically. Yeah. And so then become taboo. For, it's seen as a weak, a feminine weakness, right? And I usually argue, and this will come back to my key finding, was about boys' relational capabilities, which are often overlooked and underestimated, not only in the literature, academic literature, but in their everyday lives, because it's seen as a feminine weakness, but it's actually a human strength, right? These relational capabilities help us to have healthy relationships, which are essential in our professions as well as in our personal lives. It serves individuals well to know how to read and respond to people and to to ask for help and to offer help. All these things that are essential to living life because they've been associated with femininity have been devalued and therefore are acceptable in girls and women because girls and women okay it's fine if they're feminine but because femininity is the lesser valued gender it's really taboo men risk their masculinity they risk being real men or boys if they possess or reveal their and value their feminine traits traits that are deemed feminine right and this idea what you're saying earlier mark about like pressures around masculinity and femininity, yeah, you can accuse women as well as men of not being feminine or masculine enough, but the expectation to prove masculinity is on the whole greater than the expectation to prove femininity. Mm-hmm. Like boys yes. will hear it from a very early age, any slip up, you're wearing pink, you're crying too much, you're, you look at your nails the wrong way, you're eating your <laughs> potato chips the wrong way, all these things, everything, that, like every day almost it feels like anyone can call you out at any time because you've stepped outside the box of, of acceptable masculinity and now you're not. And the, and the boys in my, the four-year-old boys described this really quickly. They said, you're not a boy, you're a girl. It totally goes right. Whereas a, a girl who is a tomboy was not going to face, first of all, again, tomboy, masculine, more valued, more acceptable. So, oh, it's maybe not desirable in a very traditional setting, but it's more acceptable. It doesn't, the um, societal kind of consequences don't come down as harshly on girls when they strive to be masculine. Because again, as a society, one more, we value masculinity. So we feel like, oh, okay, she's tough and maybe that'll make it hard for her to get a husband. But 
we don't shame it to the extent that we shame boys reaching down. We don't shame girls reaching up to masculinity the way that we shame boys reaching down to femininity. Um, And so... Can I just say something like when a boy says to another boy, are you just like one of the girls? If I were there witnessing that, I would feel insulted. Right. Right. And actually, Tony Porter in his TED Talk talks about that. He said he was talking to an adolescent boy and they were on the football field. He asked the kid, what would you do? How would you feel if the coach said you're playing like a girl? And the boy says it would destroy me. He says it in front of his peers. He says, it would destroy me. And Tony Porter asked this really important question. He goes, what does that tell us about what we're teaching boys about yeah. girls? That if to accuse them of being girly or to be accuse them of being feminine or like a girl is just, it would destroy him. And again, that kind of reflects who gets valued and what gets valued and what's acceptable in whom. And when we decide that everything that's feminine is not valued, we really do harm to everyone, right? I think I mentioned, Deborah, to you before, like Terry Real, who is a family therapist and a couple therapist, he said it, I really loved how he said it. And he said, when you take the whole range of human emotions, qualities, interests, you know, potentials, and you divide it in half and you said this half is masculine and this half is feminine and only boys and men can be masculine and only girls and women can be feminine, then everyone loses. But it's the same idea that it, when we devalue femininity, it makes it less accessible to everyone. And so we're really, as a society, we're cutting ourselves off from skills and qualities that we need in order to thrive that are essential to our well-being and we make it a little bit more acceptable for women but even these days where to be a modern woman is to have access to all the masculine things women are suffering in the same ways and so it's really yeah yeah. and so it's not helpful not helping anyone i think in that in that phrase where you're, you're acting like a girl i think it's more more is going on than just being accused of being like the other sex rather it's more about the emasculation right which is also in a way dehumanizing right right is cutting away at the intrinsic dignity of the human life when you speak that way i think that that's what's happening at the heart it's not about him being a girl i mean we all know that women are valuable and that all feminine traits that are to be embraced in both sexes and but i think what cuts what goes beyond those actual words which sometimes people just take it so as value is that you're being dehumanized in right. one swoop. And then you're also dehumanizing the, the feminine sex, right? Or you're so, making a value judgment about their worth. Oh, right? yeah, exactly. And, so, and, and everyone wants to feel worthy and seen and, and valued. And you're saying that if you're not this narrow thing that we've decided is the only thing that's worthy, then because the whole idea of this gender socialization towards conventions of masculinity is the assumption that there's one right way to be, that there's only one right way to be, as opposed to there being multiple masculinities, many ways to be a boy or a man. They're saying that if you're not this one narrow thing, then you are somehow lesser than. Yeah. And it sets boys up and men up again, that kind of constant uncertainty that someone can call them out at any point and say, you're not a real man, you're not a real boy, and you've been demoted, and you're not worthy anymore. It's devastating, right? Because all we're so vulnerable in our desire for people to be validated. Not that we rely on everybody's validation, but it does matter. One of my um, 15-year-olds said that. He goes, people always tell you it doesn't matter what other people think. He goes, but the truth is, it does. <laughs> you're yeah. living in the world with people, and you want to want to connect with not everyone, but some specific yeah. people. And that was another point that Mark brought up was that like you become more selective and savvy about who you can show things to. And hopefully the, the healthiest, like the best protector against psychological and social risk, the people who have better health and being are the ones who have at least one relationship where they can confide and they can feel that they can be themselves and be real and belong. And the ones who don't have that, there's this epidemic of loneliness that you've probably read about. And there's anxiety and depression because this idea that if you were to try to enter a space as yourself, people would not accept it. And there could even be hostility. There's bullying, there's harassment, there's cancel culture. There's all this, all these unnecessary pressures and harm that lurk. Yeah, there's all these really horrible repercussions that can happen. So I really feel for young people and people of all ages who are just trying to navigate because I think there's a fundamental human desire to connect with other people and we've made it so hard and it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't think social media helps either, right? (laughs) No, yeah, it amplifies all, does 
can be if very intentionally and carefully it can help to connect people but it can also really amplify a lot of the risks and a lot of the stresses and also because people are more likely to say negative things online than they ever would to someone's face it just facilitates a kind of interaction that is you know it, it can be devastating they don't realize the impact they're having because they're not in the room with the person who is feeling it whereas if you were in the room and you saw how you hurt them you would feel that there would be a resonance there that would a feedback that would tell you oh that was not okay and we so we don't have account the kind of accountability when we're interacting online that we, we might have be or be more likely to have in person and, and speaking on the theme of masks, it's like social media offers so many ways to wear masks. Yeah, We get to cultivate, you know, one of the, um, my findings was like kind of this shift that I observed in the boys that began in early childhood, but, you know, continues throughout our lives and is related to that mask. It's like a shift towards from presence to pretense by way of posturing. So that posturing are the various social masks we put on because to project these images the way we want people to see us and social media makes it all the easier because you can spend an hour projecting like one, one second of impression. Whereas like when you're in person, it's more spontaneous and less under your control because that's how people actually are, right? And so it becomes very deceptive and in a way that isn't conducive to developing the kinds of relationships that we need and seek. We're looking at in terms of on a societal level, right? We tend to move towards the masculine and see them as the traits to be desirable, um, mm -hmm. masculine traits, right? Why do you think that exists? Under the context of history and on the social scheme of things, why do you think we moved actually towards the masculine traits and seen that as desirable? How has masculinity actually served people throughout history that it became the dominant force? What was it about masculinity that allowed it to be that? That is a really great question. You could write a whole thesis on that. You could write several books. I don't want to oversimplify it, but anthropologists have related it back to the need for survival. But of course, hunter-gatherer societies at times when you had to be physically tough because you had to go. But then there's actually been counter-arguments about that too, because they said that the hunt didn't happen every day. They didn't have meat every day. The really Most of the time they were eating what they were, the, the products of agriculture, the things that they were growing. And that's that. And then there's also theories about physical dominance because men, gen on average, are bigger and stronger, and their muscles develop. And that's not to say that there aren't women who are also very strong. But again, looking at group averages and in times where brute force might equals right, and then also groups that come into power that can force their way physically into power are also more able to maintain power. When power, once you have it is easier to sustain because it takes a lot more psychologically and physically for people who have been oppressed or systematically disadvantaged in whatever way to really organize and resist and overthrow, which it does happen historically. But but if I could recommend a book that might address that partly because it's Carol Gilligan and Naomi Snyder's book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? What's interesting about it is they speak to the psychological underpinnings that hold them in place. So regardless of how it came to be, now that we recognize it's problematic, why does it persist? Yeah. And they're talking about how individuals become invested in maintaining societal systems and structures that they recognize don't serve them well. What's going on? Why do we continue to buy into it or at least continue to sustain it? And so I would refer <laughs> you and your listeners to that book because they explain it really well. Doesn't it just go back to that whole concept of if you can't beat them, join them? That too. If you feel like you're either benefiting directly or somehow being protected by that system. So there's complicit masculinity as well as dominant masculinities. And then the kinds mm -hmm. of certain femininities that feel like they're benefiting from it by association. Or you can even put it in terms of what we're used to. This is what I grew up knowing. There's so many social structures that hold those systems in place that it becomes like what that adolescent boy told me. What's the point of challenging it? It's just going to be the way it's going to be. It's futile and I'll just frustrate myself and feel really out of it. Like I said, you can beat them, join them. But at the same time, the question persists. Like at the same time, there's a healthy resistance against this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. It's not what I want, but it seems to be the way to do it. So it's like this pluralistic ignorance, which is a sociological concept built around the emperor's new clothes. So everyone sees it. Everyone doesn't like it, but they all buy into it because they feel like everyone else loves it or is at least okay with it. 
right? And so that was one of the themes that came up in my interviews with the adolescent boys was that each one would say, oh, but I'm different. And this is what I really think. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is actually what all of them are saying. But the system is set up such that you're made to feel that if you don't agree with it, you're the only one and you're going to suffer the consequences of being deviant when if they actually went in and could create spaces. And this is what a lot of the best boys advocates and organizations do is they create spaces for boys and men to come together or, or for any people of all genders to come together and to hear each other share in authentic ways, in trusting, safe spaces. And then they realize, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. And it's not a problem with the individuals who feel they don't fit in, but it's a problem with what's being asked of them and the systems and the stereotypes and expectations that are unrealistic. Joe Pleck actually wrote a book in 1981 called The Myth of Masculinity. He's writing about boys and men in particular. He says, in this world of mas- conventions of masculinity and this kind of hegemonic traditional masculinity, it's an ultimately an unattainable image. Nobody can be all of those things, stoic, tough, Mm self-sufficient all the time. And even if they were at a moment, if they get older, when they're 80, they're not going to be the same kind of masculine when they were 20 or their demographics. Because also the other thing is intersectionality is absolutely relevant. And so there's differences across races and ethnicities and class. But what Joe Plex showed in Myth of Masculinity was that it's ultimately unattainable, it's unsustainable, and it's precarious. Like I said, anyone can call you out at any time. So it sets individuals who buy into it, it sets them up to strive towards an image or ideal in relation to which they will inevitably fall short. And they will feel shame because from the process of being socialized towards it, but also shame for having fallen short. And so then they live in this kind of sense of being not wanting to be found out, not wanting other people to see the ways in which they fall short of what society deems worthy and sounds valuable. Like sounds like they're dealing with both like the imposter syndrome and feelings of never good enough at this. Exactly. And that's not, again, that's not sex specific. That's something that people of all genders experience. Again, because our notions of success are very much defined in traditionally masculine terms, right? Or the terms that we yeah. deemed masculine. And so we yes. all walk around feeling that way. Exactly. There's incredible pressure there. Can we talk a little bit about how you think male privilege can impact men's mental health? Yeah, sure. We can. I think in terms of male privilege, I think a, perhaps an easier way to think about it is to talk about patriarchy and to define both of those. And, and I think they're really in, interrelated because I think male privilege can get confusing or can confuse people about what that means because people will be like, I don't feel privileged. I don't feel like I'm getting any advantage because I'm a man. But it's this idea. But patriarchy, in, simply put, is this higher, socially constructed hierarchy where as a whole, as a group, men are valued over women and then some men are valued over other men. So that's where that intersectionality comes in because it's not that all men are going to be equally valued. There's going to be certain men that are valued and it can come from race, ethnicity, class, education, religion. There's different things depending on what a particular society or culture tends to value and privilege. But that how that affects their mental health, again, it's by setting up, first of all, a kind of competitive structure which, of course, undermines any efforts to really connect in a collaborative, cooperative way, which is actually, when we talk about empathy, being really essential to the success of human species that that really runs counter to everything that we need and want in order to survive individually and as a group. But it gets in the way of health, first of all, by setting up again, this kind of externally defined notion of the one right way to be if you want to be valued and successful and powerful and all these things. And it tells them that whatever you are, it's not the right thing or it's not enough. And so you can't show people who you really are. That leads to disconnections. Disconnections, sometimes in the more extreme form in psychology, it leads to association, but at the simplest form and some things that we do, everyone does every day is compartmentalization. Like what can I show where? So again, coming back to what the little boys start to learn at early childhood, what can I show to whom? What's appropriate in what context? And that's all a part of regular social learning. I'm not saying that we should not do that. Obviously what you do at home is different than what you do at school and versus in a restaurant or whatever. But so we're always learning the different social scripts. But I think when it comes to hinder well-being, and stand in the way of human thriving is when people become disconnected from themselves. And then that also leads to disconnections from others. And so when you can't 
fully realize or express what you're thinking and feeling, of course, that's going to influence your own awareness and the way that you navigate through the world. Lying to yourself is not ever a good idea. It hinders you, but also makes it more difficult to develop the kind of emotional closeness and intimacy with other people. Because if you're not able to come in fully into your relationship, if you can't be fully present with other people, then that's going to prevent them from knowing you and from feeling truly known and belonging and acceptance and all the things that are good for us. And because mental health and being is linked to relationships, yeah, that's one of the ways that operating within a dog-eat-dog competitive hierarchical societal structure can, can have detrimental effects on well-being and mental health. So it seems like, like capitalism is tied up with patriarchy in some way or form. Those are the three big bads, right? Capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy, right? But they're all hierarchies, right? It's basically the critique is of these socially constructed hierarchies, again, that value some people over others. Um, Carol, actually, in the movie um, Beyond Men and Masculinity by Alex Gabby, um, Carol talks about that, and she talks about how, how how hierarchy stands in the way of democracy and love. So when you have a relationship where you have two partners who are not equal, love in, in the best sense of the form, in the truest and best, and the one that we strive toward, a true partnership. And then the thing is also democracy demands or requires equal voice, that we value everybody's voice. And so when you have a hierarchy, you don't have equal voice. And again, I would refer you because she says it much more eloquently, but to, to Carol Gilligan's work on this. And she just actually released, launched a new book called In a Human Voice, which talks about exactly this, is how voice is essential to relationship. Equal voice is essential to democracy you know, and how patriarchy inherently, because it is a hierarchy, gets in the way or hinders these things, hinders our connections to ourselves and to other people. Yeah. And just to link up with that note about how in an unequal relationship that can't really exist, like you mentioned love. Yeah. Love, like connection, like emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy. Like that closeness. Yeah. How does that play out in gender roles, perhaps in a marriage or like a partnership? Yeah. I think when you have one person who's more important than the other in the relationship, that's going to be a risk to the relationship, regardless of if it's a heterosexual relationship or a homosexual relationship, any kind of relationship, even friendships. When you have one person who gets their way all the time and the other person feels like their views and opinions don't matter, that's not going to end up, that's not going to end well. I mean, because it's not human nature to be conquered either physically or emotionally and mentally. We want to be known. We want to say what we think. And it's not to say that we should be spoiled either. It's not to say, oh, let's celebrate the ego. But it's to say one of the things that I use to clarify things for myself is like the idea between compromise and overcompromise. Because I think in society, we're taught, especially in the US, we're taught, oh, never compromise as though it were a really bad thing. But I'm like, anytime you're in a relationship, you have to compromise because you're meeting the person halfway at best, right? And you can't, nobody gets to have what they want all the time. That's egotistical. But the danger when it becomes at risk for being a problem is when you overcompromise. And that's when one side, one person, regardless of their gender, is always just saying, oh, whatever you want, anything that you want, becoming selfless in the relationship. And Carol actually described this in her work too, like this tension between not wanting to be selfish, but not being selfless either. Like, how do you balance that? How do you have a healthy sense of self in relationship? So it's not all about you, but it's not all about them either. And striking that balance, it's hard to do, but it's it's essential to a healthy relationship because you can build resentment when you constantly feel like, oh, they don't care what I think. They don't care what I want. You know, just in terms of what we know from daily experience and examples, that just doesn't work. We, We have an intuitive desire for fairness. And intuitive understanding for it. even kids, even the animal studies have shown like when you reward like one monkey with a grape and the other one with like celery, the one with celery like chucks it at the <laughs> researcher because they're like, this is not a fair exchange. And in, in the same way, infant studies show that we have inherent BS detectors. We yearn for it. We seek, we recognize authenticity and we know when we're not getting it. And so you can have someone who, for instance, pretends to be really sweet to you and kind to you, but you'll read it, you'll pick up instantly the difference between someone who genuinely means it and someone who's just trying to get something from you or you feel like they're not sincere. We read people very well. And so that's another thing, a part of our human capacities that those of us who are striving to be masculine and stoic and under control, 
might feel we need to not pay attention to because those kind of intuitive things are seen as soft skills. But those soft skills, again, are strengths that help us to respond to people in appropriate ways and to navigate our social situations in ways that will ultimately be better for ourselves and the people we're trying to relate to and connect with. That's very interesting, that point about like being stoic and then you will neglect to listen to your intuition. I think especially with all the uncertainty in the world, it makes sense. It makes sense that we would want to try to be under control, at least of ourselves or some of us, some parents, some leaders operate in a way that they're trying to control everyone else. But again, from everything I've read and learned and observed, people don't like to be controlled. It doesn't work. You can't and shouldn't really want to control your children. It gets in the sense that you wouldn't want somebody to try to control you. And we tend towards that, but we have to think about it and pull ourselves back from wanting that because it's not natural to the human condition. So it's an impulse to want to be in control, but the reality is we are not in control of a lot of things. And it's exactly because we feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not in control of anything. So I want to try to control what I can. But sometimes, first of all, it doesn't work. And secondly, when you do more damage than if you just learn to go with it and flow and align with where things are to check in and adapting and flexibility are, I think, underrated in our society. Um, I, I was just reading this book called The End of Trauma by George uh, A. Bonanno, and he's a, a, a trauma expert and professor at Columbia. And he actually talks about resilience as part of this flexibility sequence where people recover from trauma, really horrible physical stuff that happened to them, like losing a leg or something, through very adaptive ways of using different strategies. And your strategy of coping can vary from day to day. Are amazingly resilient. We we are yeah. impressively resilient. Yeah. That's, right? that's what what he studied too. It's like across the trajectory, like looking at the nine eleven attacks, like how people coped. Overwhelmingly, many people just moved on. Right. Yeah. It's not to say we bounce back, because I think a lot of people think of resilience as, oh, something horrible happened and then I bounced back. I think people suffer devastating losses and we're not robots, so we're not going to bounce back immediately. But the fact that we can carry on and we can do it one day at a time and we do have the resources to persist despite horrible things that can happen to us. I think that's a huge, really admirable testament to the human spirit and condition that we're able to survive and even thrive despite really horrible things that have happened and losses that are just a part of life. And it's not to say we love those losses, but to say that it'll be okay. It it will suck. It will hurt. It will feel like we are dying. But if we can pull from our inner resources and also we have the social supports to reach out and get the help that we need, then we can, we can make it another day and we can even smile down the line. We will feel good again one day. And to hold on to that hope and knowing that we have that within us, I think is an incredible strength that goes unacknowledged. And I think that we don't collectively always know we can. Again, in this effort to control and make everything perfect and try to live this life that, you know, and protect our kids from any struggle and and problems, we underestimate that we can actually handle it, that when the problems inevitably happen, because we really can't avoid them. Who could have avoided the pandemic? It was such a disaster. So many things out of our hands, but that we have the resources and the wherewithal to carry on and we will make it. I think that on days when I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, the world has so many problems, there's so many troubles, I try to hold on to that notion and it gives me hope, right? So one of the things, if I could circle back to the things, the, the key findings, because it, it is related to this, I promise. Uh, boys' relational capabilities, right? So that they absolutely have this capacity and desire as all humans do. We're born with it, the capacity and desire to form and to sustain close, meaningful mutual connections with other people, that there is a shift that for boys, I started observing, begins when they enter schools, usually at early childhood, when they start to learn societal rules that may or may not be consistent with what they've learned at home. Sometimes at home, the parents say, you can do anything you want. You can be whoever you are, ideally, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't have those kinds of homes, but at school, they learn, oh, wait a minute, new set of people that I want to like me, and how do I fit in with them? What are the rules for engagement? So they're learning those things. And what I noticed was as they entered schools and started engaging with their peers, there was a shift in their relational presence. It doesn't mean that they were suddenly present and then not present, that they had relationships and then didn't, but that they shifted the ways in which they entered their relationships. 
and that was very self-protective, very, like I said, socially adaptive, but had certain psychological and relational costs because they couldn't bring themselves in as fully and they couldn't be as aware or at least reveal that they were aware of the things that they were because boys weren't supposed to notice that or that makes under other people uncomfortable if you say, oh, you look upset today or you look stressed. If other people can't, again, don't have time to hear it or can't handle it at that moment, then they learn, oh, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to notice that. But the hope comes to, and this is why I was bringing it back in, is that there's also evidence, not just in early childhood, but throughout their adolescence and into adulthood of a healthy resistance. And this is a concept that Gilligan really highlighted in her work with adolescent girls. And this is healthy resistance that says, that shows that they continue, despite learning to be more savvy, selective, all these things, strategic, they continue to seek connections and resist disconnections. And that's something that we all do. And in a way, if you look at the world through those lenses, you go see how a lot of human behavior is about seeking connection and resisting disconnection. And it's a fundamental hunger. And when we get the connections that we seek, how thriving often results and how when we don't get the connections we're seeking, how more destructive to ourselves or destructive to other behaviors can sometimes manifest. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the key findings from your research. It does, it does seem ultimately what we all want, whether or not you're a guy or girl, is to feel connected and to find your tribe. I saw your involvement in Equimondo and it promotes nurturing, equitable, nonviolent masculinity. Can you share what that looks like in a man? Okay, so I think if I'll break that down for nurturing, I would say that's permission to care. So to say, one of the things that I noticed in my the interviews with adolescents, which paralleled what Carol Gilligan heard in her interviews with adolescent girls was, I don't care. And it was often around things that they absolutely cared about. Oh, he didn't want to be friends with me anymore, but I don't care. Or they made fun of my shorts and blah, 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 but I don't care. It's usually a little red flag, right, that said, this is something that hurt them and they're trying to posture <laughs> towards indifference. Whereas the girls would say, I don't know, because girls under the feminine gender norms, girls are not supposed to know things. They're not supposed to be too smart. You're not supposed to show up. You're supposed to enter this kind of more subordinate, subservient traditional notion of femininity, girls aren't supposed to know what they know, and boys aren't supposed to care about what they care about. And in terms of your question about Equimundo, it's giving boys and men permission to care and care about themselves and care about other people. And that can be very literal in terms of providing care if they're fathers, if they're friends, offering, offering themselves, offering help saying, I'm noticing you're not feeling well. Are you doing okay? Checking in with them. Things that boys at early childhood, and even at adolescence, I saw them doing. And, and the reason it was remarkable, because you know that an adult man might not feel as free to say that. So like one of the little boys, um, two of them were playing together. And one of them says to the other, you don't seem very happy today. Okay. And the other one says, I miss my mom. And the mm -hmm. first one says, that's okay. You always have your friends. Okay, and then they go back to playing and then five minutes later, they're fine, right? And what makes that remarkable is that you know that maybe like a 20-some-year-old man might also notice that something's not right with his buddy, but might hesitate because, oh, am I supposed to notice their vulnerability? Can I say something? They may or may not say something. But the thing is, we need people to notice. We need people to respond to us. And the thing that makes them hesitant also gets in the way of them having those relationships that they want. But again, there's risk and there's oftentimes real risk. The adolescent boys talked about this kind of competitive culture where if you put yourself out there, if you spill your guts, they said, not only is it possible for them to use it against you, it's likely they will use it against you because when they're feeling anxious and uncertain, they're insecure they're constantly trying to show themselves at, at the cost of degrading somebody else. And it's real. The antagonism is real. And I would never encourage a boy to make themselves vulnerable in the environment that they perceive to be hostile, hostile and competitive where people will use it against them. But again, coming back to Mark's point, so the challenge is finding those spaces, identifying and nurturing those relationships where they can do that, where they feel like even if they don't talk about it, they could talk about it if they wanted to. That was um, what the boys repeatedly told me was most essential most important i think it goes down to an observation i have been asked like what does it mean for you to be a man and i was like hmm, that's quite difficult to articulate until i heard a quote that says it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war 
And I was mm-hmm. like, actually, to be a man is actually to be a warrior in a garden. So you should have the ability to stand up for yourself. You have the ability to understand what does it mean for you to be strong, independent, all the traditional masculine traits. Understand what that means for you, but also have the ability to garden. Have the ability to take care of something, have the ability to nurture something, have the ability to just be in that space of vulnerability, which means because like gardening isn't necessarily seen as a masculine thing, but it's okay to be like, I know who I am even within the feminine traits that I exhibit, right? Because I do believe that both male and female obviously have masculine and feminine traits. Um, And then it's about men are predisposed more to the masculine traits just due to testosterone could make you a little bit more aggressive, right? So there's neurochemicals that lead us to the way of expressing things differently. And the same for women, they have masculine traits, but they'll lean more towards the feminine. When I listen to their conversation, sometimes I'm like, I don't think it's a battle between the two. I think it's about the joining of. And that's where marriage can be a very beautiful thing, is the joining of these two energies, right? The joining of feminine and masculine. Also, just moving away from saying that something is masculine or feminine when it's evident and when it's, it can be found in anyone, right? Yeah. And then also in terms of the testosterone, Robert Sapolsky, who's a professor of biology at Stanford University, found that actually aggressive behaviors increase levels of testosterone, not the other way around. And so this idea that because they have more testosterone, women have testosterone too, right? And yeah. so when they put male chimps in a situation that was hostile and competitive, where they were forced to dominate, that kind of behavior actually led to increases in their testosterone levels and not vice versa. And so the situation can impact our physiology. I'm just curious, what to you are some good male role models of nurturing equitable nonviolent masculinity? So one of the first for myself would actually be my father. Yeah, because my father's had a, he's had a difficult life. And in that, it, it caused them to, let's say, lean, I wouldn't say masculinity, but go into machoism and, and some Machiavellian kind of spaces, right? So I just want to distinguish that it was the toxic forms of masculinity where it can progress. And then through just his own life challenges, he learned actually that the nurturing side is where you can keep the lid on this, right? Where you can actually express masculinity in a positive way. So in terms of role models for me, it, it would be my father. In terms of globally in the world at the moment, I'm not really sure who would be somebody that I'm like, yeah, that person would be the most ideal male. (laughs) I don't think there is such a thing as an ideal male, ideal female, to be fair. I think it's about finding, I think, and and I shared this with you, Deborah, the other day, and it goes down to, I live in Africa, there was a group of elephants, it might have been Botswana, Zambia, wherever, but they had, it's a matriarch, as as elephants are, right? But there's also a dominant male bull that kind of keeps the, the um, bulls and check the younger ones and that male had unfortunately passed away and what they found is that the young males would go and they were killing rhinos killing other animals ripping up trees that they didn't need to rip up just exerting their strength over everything mm-hmm. and i know it's like an animal model but i think there's a lot to be learned there i think men need strong men around them in order to determine okay like how can i express my masculinity who can i talk to they might not be comfortable talking to a girl that's okay. They might not be comfortable talking to their mom. That's okay. But they could be comfortable talking to an uncle, to their brother, to a best friend. And it's about finding those spaces of this is a person who I deem to have, let's say, masculine energies who thinks like me that I can talk to and be vulnerable with. But I feel like that's almost being discouraged sometimes in the men. Because like you say, I, there's a cultural thing where guys will tell you again, hey, man up. And you always worry that, like, even my best friend might just tell me to man up in this situation. Sometimes that's what I need to hear, but more often than not, it's not, right? Because mm-hmm. you're going to them with a vulnerable space. So it is about finding guys, and generally I would say if you're a young guy, find an older guy to mentor you. And that's where I find the role models. In terms of looking at society, celebrities, who is out there to look at, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. I haven't really been paying attention to it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Mark. How about you, Judy? I think I definitely agree with Mark that it's if we're trying to move away from the notion that there's one right best way to be, then we don't want to single out one image of masculinity. But I think that in general, for role models, I always admire people who are of all genders who are just very connected, again, connected to themselves, connected to other people and just living their lives as best as they can trying to help. And so some figures that come to mind and I hope you, you may or may not know them, but there's Mr. Rogers, and oh, there's yeah. the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, just people who are yeah. really centered, grounded, 
They don't claim to be perfect. In fact, it's their humility, I think. And that's the other thing that kind of traditional masculinity doesn't allow is that it's coupled with the vulnerability, right? A vulnerability and humility, which in one of my papers, I argue, those are essential to relationships. They're essential to learning. They're essential to moving through the world in a way that is open to new experiences. And again, to learning, how do you learn anything if you can't admit that you don't know it? You don't already know it, right? And we push through in the name of masculinity, we push people to claim that they know everything, that they're already in control, that there's nothing more for them to benefit from or to learn from in life. And I think that's a really dangerous, closed-minded way to move through it. And so, you know, all of these people who really practice a humility that is beautiful and essential to connecting and staying connected to themselves and to connecting with other people and to learning from any situation and any person. I think that's a really healthy masculinity. I think the other thing too, is you can also think about in contrast to the man box that came up, which usually is meant to capture traditional macho masculinity. You can also ask people, what do you think it means when someone has passed away and you said he was a good man or he was a great man? They know that one too. So they're very quick to fill up the man box because they know the stereotypes, toughness, stoicism, self-efficiency. But they also know the traits of a good or great man. He's honest. He's loyal. He's responsible. He works hard. He helps other people. And we know this one too. And so that's also at our disposal. That's also part of our repertoire of knowledge. And we can reach for that regardless of our gender. But in terms of specific male role models and the possible importance of that in boys' lives or in any gender, in children's lives, I usually say it's important for children to see a range of people displaying a range of human behavior. So if they only see women doing relationships and expressing emotions and caring and being vulnerable, then they're going to think that only women do that, right? So they need to see men like Mark's father. They need to see men doing that. And they need to see men struggling with solving a problem, struggling with making a mistake and learning from it. They need to know that's okay. And I think as adults, um, again, across genders, we worry like, oh, if I admit that I made a mistake, it'll make me look weak. It'll make me look like people shouldn't trust what I'm saying. But actually, that's what I feel like younger people need to see is that it's human to do this. And then when it happens to them, they'll know it's okay and that they can work through it instead of having to hide it and feel ashamed by it and to feel stifled or stopped in a way that limits their learning and limits their development. And I I usually tell my students, there used to be a campaign that the Ms. Foundation in the U.S. has take your daughter to work day. And there was a kind of a, not a backlash, but a question, oh, what are you going to have for boys? And one of the ideas that came across the table was make these buttons and that say, a boy is watching you. What is he learning? And, and I usually expand that to say, a child is watching you. What are they learning? And what are they learning about when they look mm-hmm. at Mark? What are they learning about what it means to be a man? Or when they look at me, what are they learning about what it means to be a woman? Or what it means to be an adult? Or what it means to be in the world and to care about people? And what happens to those of us who care and want to help? Is there mm-hmm. space? Because kids and adults are figuring out how to be in the world and what's our place in the world. We want to see examples of people, like you said, Mark, people like us who share our values, who have similar goals in the sense of just wanting to be decent, good people and kindness and empathy and compassion, that there's a place for us in the world and that we can do some good somewhere, whether it's locally, within our families, with our, just our friends on a larger scale, that there's space for that. And that, that's, again, the idea of belonging I think we all need it and we all can't really live without it. Yeah, I think we find a a sense of who we are in other people, right? We learn about ourselves when other people share their stories and then we share their stories with them. But since we're on that topic about male role models, for me, the one figure that comes to mind is Jesus from the Bible. I really feel like he breaks that mold of traditional masculinity because he was actually quite vulnerable. You know how he died on the cross and then also... He was very tender with women, especially women on the fringes of society that were judged, that were deemed unworthy. And also in Isaiah, talking about his coming, it said a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not blow out. And that speaks of the tenderness and gentleness in the kind of masculinity that he exemplified. And so for me, that's what comes to mind when I think about, yeah nurturing equitable nonviolent masculinity so <laughs> yeah i just wanted to share that and accepting of everyone yes yeah except the pharisees <laughs> who promoted wearing masks i think 
that was he accepted them, but like he also had hard words to say to them. So he wasn't always completely accepting. Like he went to the temple and he took out a whip. He's like, "Why are you turning my father's home into、um, a marketplace?" Yeah. So he had that toughness in him as well. But I love that he had both those sides, and that in different contexts he could bring it out in ways that brought truth to power. Yeah, but there's also a difference between accepting people versus accepting behaviors. You know, you、mm-hmm. can accept people without necessarily accepting their behavior, right?、Yeah. And same that kind of advice that they give to parents: when your child does something you don't like, you don't say "I don't like you." You say、yeah. "I don't like that you did this," and、yeah. I know that you can do better. Or I know that this wasn't something that you would do or should want to do. So it seems like a small difference, but I think when parents correct their children, it's important. To emphasize that it's not that we're saying you're a bad person. We're saying、mm-hmm. that this behavior was not good, and it's not consistent with what your values are, with what our family's values are, or whatever. It's, it's, you, cr- you should critique the behavior and not the person. And、exactly. so, on the flip side of that is accepting people, but not necessarily saying not the behavior. Yeah, you love everything that they do. But all easily descend into bad behavior. Because we all influence each other, right? So, like, the possibility of that is always is exactly what makes good behavior honorable or admirable, right? If 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 we all just behaved well all the time, then the it wouldn't it's not difficult, right? But it's because there's always the temptation to do not the temptation, but there's the possibility, always the possibility, or even just to go to Star Wars, right? There's always a dark side. In in order to contrast with the light, and you have to choose,、yeah. and it's choosing to do the right thing. Becomes admirable when it's not the only choice,、mm-hmm. right?、So. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Okay, so we are coming to the end of this session with you, Judy. Thank you so much for your generous sharing. Really appreciate it. I do have one last question, which kind of harkens back to Mark's initial comment about gender dynamics in marriage, and wanted to get your opinion, Judy, on what what you think about. The male-female dynamic, and if there's a way that couples can bring out the best in each other based on this dynamic. Again, because we established that, if anything, there's a masculine-feminine dynamic. Because sometimes you'll find that in a heterosexual relationship, sometimes the woman has more masculine qualities、yeah. and the man has more feminine qualities, and <laughs> or or in a same-sex relationship, in a healthy partnership, I don't know that. You have to necessarily balance each out, like in terms of being opposites, because I also can see healthy partnerships where people are both are similar. But I think what's important is that there's an openness and communication, and there's a health, there's a respect and trust that's there, so that each side can come to the relationship honestly and openly, and know that they will be heard, even if they're not agreed with. Right,、mm-hmm. and so creating those spaces. I think that's the whole idea. Is like not to say, oh, everyone has to be like me, or everyone has to be my complement. I don't know that people fit in that way, especially、yeah. given you know the seven billion of us that are on the world. <laughs> But I think it's more about making sure that there will always make intentional safe spaces for people to enter as they are. And when we decide to partner with someone, whether in friendship or romantically, usually what will work out is someone who is willing to listen. And whether they complement us perfectly in terms of their inherent traits or values is relevant, but not at the center of it. I think it's really about listening and a willingness to listen that is founded in a fundamental respect and valuing、yeah. the other person, like you said, in their humanity. To say this is a whole person, and I want to know them for all that they are, as opposed to I want them to be my perfect match or my other or something like that. I think that's dangerous. I love how you highlighted that even in a heterosexual relationship, like sometimes the female could display some more masculine traits in some ways, like whether or not maybe she's traditionally maybe she could break with the mold, break with the mold by being the. Breadwinner, right?、So、all of those things can factor into, or just being more more compartmentalized in her emotions and not as expressive. I've seen couples like that too. Or to build on what you're saying, if the woman is the predominant worker, maybe the man he loves raising children, he loves being with his kids,、yeah. and to、yep. give make space for that too. And、yeah. so to not again to move、yeah. away from this idea that first of all to even move away from even labeling things as masculine and feminine, but that's hard because it's it's 
out there and it's so pervasive, but at least to definitely move away from saying only certain people can be masculine and only certain people can be feminine. Because again, then we all lose, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to have some rapid fire questions now that we've worked through all this stuff. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Judy, if you could have dinner with any fictional character... Who would it be and why? So I'm going to go a little bit childish on this one. I don't know if you two might be too young to know that a show called The Simpsons. It's a cartoon. Yeah. So there's one character named Ralph who always is so funny and so sweet. And so I would want to hang out with Ralph. He's the chief's son, but he always says anyway. So that's who comes to mind. I didn't. I missed Ralph. I, did, I never noticed Ralph, but I've never watched too many episodes of Simpsons, anyways. But I definitely have to look out for Ralph now. <laughs> you can look up Ralph quotes if you Google it, and they're pretty funny. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look that up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next question: If you could instantly master any instrument, which one would you choose, and why? I think I would choose piano. But oh, that's partly because I actually learned the piano and I was reasonably good at it when I was a teenager. And it's so frustrating to come back to it and not be able to do it. So I was like, oh, if I could instantly master it, then I could return to, at the very yeah. least, return to what I remember being able to do, which is always a little bit sad and frustrating when I'm like, oh, my fingers don't go where I want them to go anymore. So, right. yeah. Okay. And the next question that I have is what's your favorite food combo? I love soup noodles. I love mm-hmm. any soup noodles. <laughs> so, Wonton soup noodles. Any soup uh, noodles from anywhere. In the, yeah, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's my love favorite comfort food. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay, Mark, on to you. Cool. So I've got a few as well here, Judy. If you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? I think I would really like transport. Um, uh, yeah, tele- sorry, teleportation. Teleportation. Yes, because yeah. it's all because they always think, oh, if I could just pop over and be with this person for an, oh, for yeah. a coffee or an afternoon or the people who need to get to, and it's not always easy to get to to them. I think that's, I would like that. That's very cool. Yeah, if you were to be in a fake band, what music would you play, or what genre of music would you play? That's hard. I think something. I want to say something upbeat, but I think that usually when I like sing karaoke, I usually sing more ballads so i know that's not really like a band cranberries something fun and happy cool that's awesome energetic would be good energetic okay so any type of music that's energetic that's cool i like that actually and if you could instantly learn any language which one would you choose and why that's really hard. I would want to, this kind of goes with the superpower thing. I would love to be able to understand all languages. My husband and I travel a lot and I would just love to be able to communicate with people wherever we are in the world. I think there's so much I would like to learn from them. And it, the language barrier, I'm always like, oh, I wish I could, you know, Google Translate helps, but it's, mm-hmm. in terms of talking to people, I would really love to be able to understand them. And for them to be able to share their thoughts and feelings in the language that's most comfortable to them. And for me to be able to understand what they mean as they mean it. So Very cool. Oh, thank you so much. That's cool. Yeah, I love that too. Okay, so we're come to the end of it. Thank you so much for your time, Judy. Um, Thank you both. I really enjoyed it. And it was such a pleasure to be here with you. Wow, I feel like I've learned so much today and now have a new way of thinking about things because Judy generously shared powerful insights on masculinity and boys' psychosocial development. We covered societal pressures, emotional openness, and privilege. Thank you so much, Judy, and thanks, Mark. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a little favor and drop in your comments on Spotify to boost our ratings and to encourage us. Please join us again in December for our next episode focusing on anxiety and depression. We'll explore coping and self-healing strategies. If you or someone else you know is going through it, this is the episode to listen to. Stay tuned for more uncomfortable but crucial conversations.